0: and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me on this spectacularly beautiful Friday evening. Let's talk about today's main case. Uh And I've been looking forward to this one for a while, and Darcy knows why. (laughs) I know that quite a while back we talked about kind of doing a series where we went over murderers or serial killers and different events, criminal events, in our home states. And we have gone back and forth about this, and we've done a few, like we did Mia Zapata and a couple of the other Seattle-related cases for myself where we really kind of dig into the particular time period that we both grew up in. Mm -hmm. Um, So today I want to talk about Gary Ridgway, a.k.a. the Green River Killer. Heavy hitter indeed. Now, at the risk of kind of being macabre and dark and whatnot. This is a case that's kind of near and dear to my heart because I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and I very, very distinctly remember hearing references to this case, seeing news stories as they happened and as they unwound. And then I also remember my parents and relatives and people that I knew, their parents telling them, you better be a good kid because otherwise the Green River Killer is going to come get you. Whoa. Or you better come straight home from school, otherwise the Green River Killer is going to come get you. That kind of a thing. And Yikes. I don't, I don't think that many people in that time period, including myself and my family, knew that this man was targeting sex workers mm-hmm. primarily. Okay, so let's sort of dig into this case a little bit. The Green River itself is two rivers in washington state it's not necessarily referring to one river okay okay? and not a lot of people know that it's the duwamish river which is a river that i actually grew up next to we had a house at one point that was like a block from the river in seattle and the north fork tootle river okay the duwamish river tributary is about a 15 mile long river arising on the western slopes of the cascade mountain range south of interstate 90 okay it is an absolutely stunning area it is so pristine and so beautiful and I remember spending many 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 summers there as a child my father would take me down to sort of the tributaries into little areas off that river and we would hang out and enjoy the river and its beauty and it was quiet and peaceful and it was not sort of a an area like a public beach it was very isolated um it is a commonly known river also referred to as the green river after the watershed that runs between Seattle and Tacoma, which are the two most populous cities in Washington state, in case you didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, the river also runs through Auburn, which is kind of a side Ooh. city in near Seattle. Sorry. The city of Auburn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not Auburn in the <laughs> south, but there's a city called Auburn in Washington state, so which the Green River runs through. Um, ri- initially, the river was used for logging and a lot of railroad type activities and commerce. But then Tacoma filed for rights to use the river after World War One and sort of that era. Now much of the upper portions of the river are gated water supply areas for Tacoma and a lot of them have restricted access. You're not allowed to go in and out of those roads and have access to the river anymore because it's a water supply. And then. This has been really controversial, the sort of narrowing that down and restricting the access, because a lot of people like myself and my family used the river for recreational uses throughout the years. Um, It's long been used for boating and intertubing and swimming. And I do remember intertubing down that river as a kid. And now they've restricted access. You're not allowed to do that anymore. And a lot of people have really been pissed off Mm -hmm. about that. But... As we all know, the first victims of Gary Ridgway were found here in the early 80s, making this area famous or infamous, though only a few of the bodies were actually found in the Mm. river itself. And a lot of people don't know that either. Not all of them were found in the river, only a couple of them. So Gary Leon Ridgway was born February 18th, 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah. His parents, Mary and Thomas Ridgway, had three sons, and Gary was the middle child. Now we all know how much trouble the middle child can get into. That's me. I'm the middle child, by the way. (laughs) Are you?
1: I'm the youngest. There's only two of us, though, so there wasn't a middle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So Gary had a troubled upbringing, according to most accounts. His mother was extremely domineering and had these violent arguments on a frequent basis with his father. Um, Their family was very isolated And no one was allowed in the house or to come over. They didn't have any guests at all. They were very kind Mm. of, they didn't want outsiders involved in their family. Gary's father, Thomas was a bus driver who often complained about sex workers. Hmm. Surprise, surprise, Mm. right? His mother, on the other hand, was known to be sort of a provocative type of a woman. She wore very form fitting clothes, lots of makeup, And she had this extremely violent temper, which is so crazy. But despite this fact, Gary was very close with her, which Mm -hmm. is interesting. Um, According to accounts by family, Gary wet the bed until he was about 13, which is one of those things in the trifecta. I remember the the bedwetting and his crazy mother washed his junk like every day when he was growing up. She washed She washed, him. She washed his genitals. Hmm. So he has a very,
1: very twisted understanding of sex from a very early yes. age. Okay. Yeah.
0: This caused him to have conflicting feelings of anger and sexual excitement when he hit puberty. Hmm. Which is so scary because he would simultaneously fantasize about screwing his mom and killing her. Whoa. And as he hit puberty, he started with the fires and the killing small animals as well. So he's Three for three. Putting all... The only one I don't see in this is a head injury. But, like, it seems like he has everything else falling into place. Growing up for Gary was not easy. He was small and dyslexic and held back a year in high school. His IQ was in the low 80s. And just for reference, the average is about 90 to 110. Yeah. Um, we've had a conversation about that before. Yeah. And what's interesting is when he was 16, he stabbed a six-year-old. Whoa. Who survived. And it's weird because it's sa- it said that he took this little boy into the woods and stabbed him in the liver for no apparent reason. Mm. And he got away with it. Like, there was no arrest. Nothing happened? Was, yeah. Freaking weird, um. right? So (sighs) Gary's family moved to Washington state when he was about 11 and he didn't graduate from high school until he was 20 years old.
1: Wow. Isn't
0: that weird? Like all of, I had no idea about any of this when I was researching it because I think the police kept a lot about this case, very close to the vest. They were very tight lipped about this. Right. Um, Yeah. I could see that like while
1: it was happening Especially because of the, the victim pool, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, Gary went to Taiyi High School. And after high school, he got a job with Kenworth Trucking, which is a major company in Washington State. It's a place to, to work if you want to be a trucker in that particular area. He was a spray painter. And he got that job in graduated in the late 60s and, and started working there in the, in the 70s. He had a stint in the Navy. And he married his girlfriend, Claudia King, from high school. And then he was sent to Vietnam, where he did see combat.
1: Oh, okay. Interesting. And
0: during this period of time, he also was known to frequent sex workers. Okay. But he got gonorrhea. That's really common in, like, the
1: Vietnam um, era was, like, a lot of, of, of guys coming back with Sexually transmitted diseases because they were seeing sex workers over there. Yeah, a lot of guys came back hooked on drugs too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, my, my dad was in Vietnam. He came back with a mm-hmm. lot of issues too. But this, the fact that he was he got an STD, kind of simultaneously pissed him off and like, but at the same time he couldn't stop seeing the sex workers.
1: So he probably had like a sex addiction.
0: Yes, absolutely. He was yeah. a classic nymphomaniac. It sounds like. But um, marriage, his marriage to his first wife ended in about a year. And his friends all say that he was super friendly, but he was a little weird. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah, kind a of a <laughs> light way to put it. But his yeah. marriages always broke up because of infidelities on both sides. He got married again. Obviously, that marriage broke up as well. And his wife, his second wife claims that he choked her. Hmm. and that that was a common occurrence in their relationship. So he was... So this is something he's getting off on. Getting into these sort of S&M, sort of violent sexual encounters. It's getting more and more like ramping up of that. But he also became super religious during his second marriage. Oh, interesting. And this was not something he grew up with. This is something that he developed in his adulthood years where he just suddenly became a Christian and this was, like, a huge part of his life. And he was known to cry during sermons. Like, he was so Whoa. emotional about it that he would start crying. Now, yeah. granted, this was interesting um, because he was known to go door-to-door and read aloud from the Bible, as well as reading aloud for men at home. So he was, like, out evangelizing in his neighborhood, going door-to-door to talk to people about Christianity. That's a big no thanks for me. Yeah. But at the same time, he was still mm-hmm. seeing the sex workers. Yeah, so he was known to have this incredibly insatiable sexual appetite. His wives and his girlfriends all confirmed this. He was known to want sex multiple times every single day, as well as sex in public places. And he had a fixation with sex workers. And they don't know really how much of this had to do with his father complaining about them constantly or the fact that they were a source for available and ready sex. I don't know, but it seems as though he had Mm -hmm. sort of a love-hate relationship with them. And he was sort of torn between lust and his extremely powerful religious beliefs. It's, I mean, it's probably
1: a combination of all of those coming together, right? So, like, he learned from an early age that sex workers are bad. That's his dad saying that. It's not me saying that. Then he goes to Vietnam and he's visiting sex workers and he contracts gonorrhea. And so that makes him angry. And then he becomes super, super religious, which carries specifically when it comes to sex, which can carry a lot of shame with it um, yeah. especially I would think if you kind of become religious as an adult because then yeah. it's kind of like you have to like slough off the old you or whatever and that you know can bring a lot of shame with it as well. And so right. like he's not he's not handling like all of these things in his life at all that have to do no. with sex.
0: No um, and it seems he had three marriages and the last one of his marriages was actually with him at his the time of his arrest. And he was known to enjoy choking the ladies and having these kind of violent interactions with them. He had one son named Matthew and very, very low self-esteem. Um, and then he as well had a very unhealthy relationship with his mom. And he kept her on the bank account, his joint bank account, even after he got married. And consulted her with everything. That's, that's super bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Um, At the same time, he was known to take ladies to areas where he had buried bodies. Just super creepy that this is like a kind of romantic little interlude for him to take girlfriends and different women that he dated and wives and all kinds of other women back to these sites where he had buried bodies. And they had no idea in these sort of serene... Yeah. Pastoral areas that there's like something going on, that somebody was buried there. It's like he knows a dirty little secret, and that's what's like exciting for him. Yeah. Now, the actual case itself, um, once murder comes into play, at one time there were 25 different detectives working on this case. It was the largest case in King County history. And with a conviction count of 49 and a confession of 71 killings. He is officially known as the most, or he was until just recent times, as the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. But Samuel Little, as we all know um, from an earlier episode that we did on the show as well, has now likely overtaken him at this point in time. I don't think that's an
1: official count for Sam Little. I think that that's like what they anticipate, but they haven't... I think Gary Ridgway still holds the record as of yet, Okay, um, but, but he will be overtaken right. by Sam Lillard.
0: I think we all kind of anticipate that that number is going to mm-hmm. be overtaken very soon. Um, one third of all murder cases in the U.S. are cold cases, and only 1% are ever solved. And I think what's particularly interesting about this case is that the Green River case was actually considered a cold case for a long period of time. It was still active, Mm -hmm. but it was considered a cold case because it was so old when they actually ended up finding him. But, okay, so let's go back in time a little bit. It was 1982, and this was the year that the case really blew up because five bodies surfaced during the course of one month. Now, I believe I was in elementary school in the early 80s. And I still remember hearing about these cases on TV. Like, it was just that, like, well-known. And they were putting it on the news. And I think that, if I recall correctly, they weren't really telling people that they were sex workers. Because people back then didn't really talk about sex workers. It wasn't, like, a thing. Yeah. It was like oh this promiscuous, you know, slutty, you know, disgusting person was addicted this drug addict or whatever but they never talked. It was it right. was very shameful and it wasn't talked about in a in a a way that made these people sound human. And as we've had multiple discussions on other shows, these people truly were not considered human by law enforcement. And mm-hmm. the fact that these were all sex workers and they were all strangled with ligature marks around their neck I think in many ways, it wasn't taken very seriously at the time. It was scary Mm -hmm. for a lot of people like myself and my family because we didn't necessarily know that they were sex workers. We just thought that there was somebody out there targeting young women and throwing their bodies in the river. Yeah, it was like a boogeyman. Yeah, exactly. And that is how this case was for many of us that grew up in the Pacific Northwest is there's a boogeyman out there killing young women and girls and throwing them in the river. Gosh.
1: Isn't it horrifying? Yeah.
0: But looking back on this, again, like I mentioned, police were not open about this case. And gradually, as the task force that was assigned to this case gained momentum, they kept finding more bodies and more loose ends. But despite finding 44 bodies, they still had no leads, and they were completely and absolutely stumped on this case, well into the 90s and way beyond when they first started finding bodies for this. Now, sex workers were perfect victims, and they have Mm -hmm. long been perfect victims because they work in the dark, they're under the radar, they can easily disappear without a trace, they are the most vulnerable portion of the population in many ways with respect to crime, and they're less likely to report crime. They are marginalized victims in every sense of the word and statistically less likely to be reported victims as well. And again, we've had many, many conversations on the show about this particular portion of the population. But it's super crazy to look back at this period in time and how the media really made light of this. And they didn't look like they were trying hard at all. I think many, many, many people during that time period just thought the police didn't care particularly the families of these victims, they there was really this sort of perception that the police was kind of laughing and that they were like, hey, you know, whatever, these prostitutes, these whatever, these drug addicts, it's not a big deal, you know, whatever kind of a thing.
1: Yeah, get rid of good riddance, less work for us or whatever.
0: Yeah. And then as I mentioned, parents would threaten us that we would get snatched if we left the house after dark if we went out with our friends without asking permission if we ever went out by ourselves or in small groups we were always threatened with the, the knowledge that maybe the Green River Killer would come grab us. Then Detective Reichert comes in he was assigned to this case and he would soon become sheriff but he worked extensively on this case for decades and devoted his entire career to solving the case of the Green River Killer once he was assigned to it Like, it became his mission in life to solve this case. And eventually, the trail went cold, and so did the case. This was through the 80s and 90s. And I think there was sort of a pause where there weren't as many bodies being found, and so people just kind of thought, well, maybe he went to another state, maybe he died. There was really kind of this sense by the media and and people that lived in the Pacific Northwest that maybe it was just a media-created illusion that this wasn't really a thing. Mm. You know what I mean? There were a lot of us who really, and families that believed that this wasn't a real thing, that there really was no Green River Killer. It was just an object of our imagination, and the media created it. Wow. So, 1983, we have 11 bodies in this case. And there was a man named Melvin Foster who offered to help with the case. He was a taxi driver who frequented prostitutes and drove them around He initially denied knowing the victims, but then said he knew a good portion of them. Police put Mr. Foster on a 24-hour watch and searched his property, but he ended up being a dead end. So they kind of still put him at the top of the suspect list. But there was no evidence linking any of the bodies found to him. He was just kind of this super creepy dude that was sort of taking police attention and time away from the real killer. Mm-hmm. So he's sort of a red herring. Well, and as soon as you
1: lie to the police and they find out, that they're, that makes you su- super suspicious. Yeah. So just that in itself is going to put you at the top of the list. Yeah.
0: So then a year later, 1984... Two years into the investigation... Because they started the investigation in the 1982... Obviously when they started finding the bodies... Mm-hmm. And they found 11 bodies at that point... But um, they have 27 bodies at that point... And the tips are drying up... Uh, the, the, the news again did not emphasize sex workers... Most of the time it was just these poor women... That were you know, in a bad situation and ended up disappearing... It was their own fault somehow... That kind of a thing...
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then interestingly enough... Ted Bundy jumps in in 1984 and offers to help. Now, he is incarcerated in Florida uh, with charges of being a serial killer. He wrote a letter to Officer Reichert offering insight into the mind of a serial killer. So this was really, really interesting. And detectives working on the case at that time actually flew out to see him. And Have you read that book? No. But, like, I've, heard a, couple, it's so I've good. heard a couple different podcasts about it. And it is just, it's so creepy. Like, this whole situation is just super creepy. But um, Ted Bundy at that time told the police that he, that the killer probably returned to the scene to check the bodies. Again, he took girlfriends back to the scene where these people had been, mm-hmm. bodies had been buried. Um, and that he was probably not touching the bodies and they said that they need to narrow down his profile and that he would be staying close to the area where he dumped the victims. He would not be far. So he would be living, interacting, and coming back and forth from those sites regularly. So they rec- he recommended that the police start watching those sites very, very closely so that they yeah. could narrow down the profiles. Um, jumping back to 1983 in April, a woman disappeared and her boyfriend chased the truck down that had grabbed her or picked her up and the truck belonged to Gary Ridgway. But when he was questioned, he denied all contact with this woman that he tried to grab. So... At that point, this goes into the the records and the files on this case, and in 1984-1985, kind of the end of 1984 and into 1985, Ridgway also contacts the police and says he has information that he has to offer. He seems extremely suspicious because how would he know anything about this case, right? Right. They polygraph him. He passes. Yeah. Then, another tipster comes forward. And this is from a sex worker who has been assaulted, and she identifies Ridgway. She pulls him out of a lineup, points him out. Says he took her to a remote wooded area and tried to strangle her. She escaped, but didn't report it because she was doing sex work, and she was afraid that she was going to get arrested, etc. She came forward because so many bodies. She was sure that he was the Green River Killer. And, and that's in the like mid-80s? This was 1985.
1: And they still took him what? how many years to bring him in? Yeah,
0: we're going to get there. But at that point, they started mm-hmm. surveillance on Gary Ridgway. Like, they really, like, here's a very, very, very serious suspect. We need to keep him under close watch. He was still trolling the streets looking for prostitutes at that time and, and sex workers. And police watched him to try to build this probable case against him. It's just like... It seems insane to me that, like, after all of this, they still, you know, because he had passed... They need more. Yeah, but because he had po- passed that yeah. polygraph test, and, you know, back then, that polygraph test meant a lot more than it does now. Now, we all know that a polygraph right. test is not admissible in court, but it meant a lot back then. And yeah. the police searched Gary Ridgway's house around that time as well, and this is 1987 by the time they actually search his house. <laughs> And his work locker and his cars. No traces. No arrest. Okay? 1987. They searched all of his stuff. They've got him on full-time surveillance. He's checking out sex workers. He's still paying for their services. But they can't arrest him because they don't have any evidence. Right. 42 bodies by 1987. So they they can't bring him in for solicitation? Nope. They didn't back then. They didn't bring him in for it, wow. and I think part of the reason for that is they wanted to keep him under surveillance. You bring him in for solicitation, you're unable to keep him under surveillance and prove and catch him, because I, I don't right. think they uh-huh. had enough evidence at that point to arrest him for the murder, and they wanted to catch him trying to do it, or find more evidence, one okay. of the two, and they figured that right. would be better served by keeping him out on the street and just keeping a very close watch on because if they're watching him 24-7, he's okay. not going to be able to kill anyone, but they can catch him trying to kill someone. Yeah. Which seems like a really gotcha. ass-backwards kind of a way to, to conduct a police investigation to me, but, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not right. a cop. So, okay, we're in 1987. By this point, there are 42 bodies. Still not, not enough evidence to narrow in on Ridgeway. The case was becoming extremely expensive at that time, and the people were demanding that we have budget cuts. Too much money has been spent on mm-hmm. this. You guys aren't serious about the case. You haven't found anyone. This is really just a, again, a creation by the media that maybe this person doesn't exist. And then in 1990, the county slashed the investigation budget, and the task force was disbanded. So no, no more Green River Task Force in the 1990s, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, 1991, the following year, the task force, as it has now been revised is one man working the case. The killer also cut back during that time. Well, so they think. I mean, I don't think that there is... They haven't really shown 100% that maybe he did cut back. Maybe he just didn't Mm -hmm. show them where the body were during that time. But there is some evidence that he cut back during that time. There were only four bodies found in the early 90s that were initially identified as the work of the Green River Killer. And Detective David Riker becomes the sheriff. So he's the one guy still working on this case, like still trying to crack it open, and he becomes the sheriff, and he's like, Uh, oh, hell no. This case is going to get cracked wide back open. I'm going to solve it. I am the new sheriff in town, and I want to make this happen. So... November 4th, 1997. We all know this is like when Pearl Jam and Nirvana and like the whole Seattle music scene just kind of exploded Hell yeah! and grunge and flannel. And I think there was sort of this also initiated a time where crime was being looked at in a different way. We're getting away from kind mm-hmm. of the Mayberry police sort of a scenario and getting into serious police investigation using serious techniques, using the FBI and really kind of focusing on a different way of solving crime, which is interesting, right? After 10 years of work on this case, Sheriff Reichert opens up the investigation and starts re looking at it with fresh eyes. One, excuse me, 10,000 items of evidence are in these files, but
1: no computers,
0: no DNA initially. And No, they didn't use that for anything. So they had taken fingerprints and DNA possibilities, but they hadn't really tested anything back then because it was really a science that was in its infancy. Mm -hmm. Um, Then they decide, hey, we're going to DNA test the heck out of all the stuff that we have because we have 10,000 pieces of evidence. There's no reason why we shouldn't be able to get a clear DNA sample off this stuff. And then, bam. Bam. DNA profile pops up from evidence found on a victim, the Green River Killer profile then emerges. And that person was dun, 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 Gary Ridgway. The man that they had initially suspected and that had been on the suspect list for years is now confirmed by DNA. The crime labs tested no fewer than three victims where DNA evidence had been left. And it all popped with Gary Ridgway's profile.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, finally, they have to find him, and this case is two decades old by then, and the case had pretty much been inactive for the last ten years. So, like, there's one guy working it, but he's not really doing it in a serious way, and they don't know where in the heck Gary Ridgway is because they stopped tracking him when the budget cuts happened. Right. So they start. Looking at the strip near SeaTac Airport, Pacific Highway, which is an area where sex workers are known to hang out. Even today, it's long been known for that same purpose. And this is where Gary used to hang out. They checked out all of his old stomping grounds. And guess what? Ridgeway was actually spotted there again. <laughs> Despite being. Unbelievable. He just couldn't stay away. And. <laughs> It's crazy. He's in one of his old stomping ground spots. I think he felt like he had Rich. gotten away with it for so long that he, there's no way they were going to catch him.
1: Right. I was going to say, like, that's scary for the women that he was possibly going to pick up. Like, is he going to start killing again? You know, I mean... I personally it, think he was killing the
0: whole time. Like, I just don't think there there was yeah. any cause. It's crazy to me to think, yeah. though, that... Uh, was he just crazy? Or did he think he would never be found? Like, was he just... Well, he also wasn't very smart. No, exactly. Um, And then they also had patrol officers that had been monitoring the areas of high sex work, and this was what he'd been known to prefer. And lo and behold, he came back. He couldn't stay away. November 30th, 2001, detectives arrest Gary Ridgway. It is a rainy day in Seattle, which, not unusual, right? When they grab him. So it's a day in Seattle. (laughs) Right. Sheriff Reichert was absolutely overjoyed and he actually went into the holding room and confronted Ridgeway himself Ooh! so can you imagine the, whole, the sheriff has to come in and like confront this guy he just cannot let this go he has to confront him
1: that's gotta feel good though for the sheriff and he's
0: basically like I got you I got you like yeah. just really like powerful for him um, the body count at this point was 52 when he was arrested but they only arrested him for three murders. Because those are the ones that the, he had, they had to have the solid DNA evidence from. So mm-hmm. they knew they were going to be able to get a conviction on those. So they, they really went forward strong with prosecuting those three cases. Um, all of these bodies were found within feet of each other in 1982 in the Green River. And it was also very, very interesting because they found spray paint spheres from the Kenworth factory, the truck factory where he painted... So that, like, linked him as well. So they found traces of the paint yeah. on the bodies of the victims. In addition to the DNA, they were not messing around. They had multiple yeah. parts of evidence that they were going to put into this case. It was not just one thing. And they also had non... That's what I actually
1: remember hearing about for him getting linked. The first, like, in the first place was the paint chips. Yeah. That they were able to link the paint chips, not the actual, actually the DNA. I think
0: they had that, but they really had no way to link him... In particular mm-hmm. to these victims, because it could have been any one of the guys painting mm-hmm. at that factory. They had to have the DNA evidence yeah, sure. to tie that all together with a nice bow tie.
1: Yeah,
0: <clears throat> But they also had non-DNA evidence they found on a fourth victim. And despite ample evidence for the prosecution and a life sentence at play here, the department wanted to get as much info as possible to try to find and identify all of Gary Ridgway's victims. So... Even though he was arrested and they're like, we have a slam dunk case here. They rebuilt the task force because they wanted to find out as many of the victims as they could. But they knew, though, that they would need Gary's help for that. So they gave him a choice. You either get the death penalty or you can cut a deal and plead guilty and tell us about as many of the murders as you possibly can in exchange for your life. And people were pissed. And I remember when this whole thing went forward because they wanted him to fry. They were like, this you know, would provide closure for the families. This guy needs the death penalty. And Washington State was a death penalty state at that time. And Reichert sits down with Ridgway. He won't let anybody else do it. You'd think that he would have like a specialist do it, like an FBI agent or something like that. But no, no, Sheriff Reichert's got to do it himself. And, well, he's worked on it the longest,
1: so he probably knows the ins and outs of all of the But
0: he sat down
1: victims. with
0: Ridgway to get as much info as possible, and this was August eighteenth, two 2003, and he videotaped the entire meeting. And I actually remember seeing clips of this on TV, um, because he wanted names and locations of all the bodies, and the two also went and stood in the actual places where the bodies were discovered and found and buried, and... Um, Gary claimed that he, between church and work, he didn't kill as much in the 90s. That's why he kind of dropped off, because he became more devoted religiously to his church life and mm-hmm. worked a lot, which is interesting. I don't know that I necessarily yeah. believe that as much, but the plea deal was negotiated for months, and but it eventually got put into place. And each and every victims, each and every one of the victims and all the details and almost every aspect of this man's life was what was required from him. They were Mm. not going to let him coast by with as little information as possible. It was like, hey, if we're going to give you this plea deal, you're going to give us everything. You're going to tell us every single tiny aspect of everything. Every part of your life, everything. And so Gary, like, spilled it and was telling them about his entire life. He told them about the escalated violence that started with his second wife, Marsha. Um, And how it got worse and worse through the late 70s. He actually harassed Marsha after she told him she wanted a divorce. He choked sex Mm. workers every day. And almost every time he had a sex worker, he had some sort of choking that he would do with them. And that was Mm. when the body started to pile up, is after his divorce from his second wife. That's when he started murdering. Um, He preferred, his preferred victims were sex workers and runaways, um, This was a very deliberate choice by him. by him because he felt like he could kill as many of them as he wanted and not get caught because they were isolated and untraceable. And there's also been some ongoing theories that the sex workers reminded him of his mom because of the tight clothes and lots of makeup. His mother... Yeah, I've heard right? that theory. His mother looked very promiscuous, wore a lot of makeup and very, very tight, kind of promiscuous type clothing, they said.
1: I think he probably had, like, a resentment of women that came from his mother. Absolutely. And maybe be, her, his mother being over-sexualized. But I don't think he, like... I, I, I don't know. It seems still like a leap that he would associate sex workers with his mom. Yeah. But I don't know. You did say he had fantasies of wanting to have sex with uh, his mom. so Yeah. Maybe.
0: It's, it's a whole creepy dichotomy there. But he worked very close to home yeah. because it was convenient. Um, the SeaTac strip was not that far from his home. And there were a lot of c- sex workers in that area. He took them in his car to remote areas. He raped them, sometimes consensually had sex with them, and then strangled many of them. Some of them he did not strangle. Some of them he let off the hook on that. And it, it's very interesting to kind of, like, how did you decide which ones you were going to kill and which ones you were just going right. to have sex with and which ones would just be raped? But um, he did revisit many of the scenes, as Ted Bundy had given insight on. And over the course of many, many interviews with Ridgway... He told them that he sometimes violated the remains, which is not what Ted Bundy said he would do. Um, And then he saved money because he wouldn't have to pay for sex workers again. He could just use the bodies that were dead, which is Hmm. super disgusting. Some of his victims Mm -hmm. were as young as 16. He admitted in these interviews to as many as 48 murders and agreed to show where he had dumped all the bodies as well as all the details that he could think of and remember and again like i mentioned they took him to the sites he had road trips where they went hunting for bodies and it's weird because when you hear the interviews of him like there are many sites out there online where they actually play the interviews with ridgeway and he seems like he is was like relieved to have gotten caught because hmm. like he got away with it for so many years and had this building sense of guilt because of his religious background. And there was this relief that he had finally gotten caught and was no longer going to be able to, to commit these crimes. But then at the same time, it's also really weird because he seems like proud of himself when he's talking about these cases and the murders and how he got away with it for so long. There were many unknown Bodies that have been given burials finally because he allowed them, he allowed the police to go dig up these bodies. Um, but it's weird because the last one they found was in 2010 in Auburn. So it looks as though there's still the possibility that more bodies could surface. Hmm. And, you know, some of the families have, you know, many missing young women in that area still haven't been located and they're, you know, listed as potential victims of the Green River Killer Sure, Um, and then some of you know because he buried them in such remote locations that some of them may never be found and it doesn't sound like he remembers the kind of details about the murders and about the locations in the same way that like Ted Bundy and Samuel Little did with like very very distinct crisp and clear memories of the victims and how he killed them and all that it just doesn't seem like Gary's was that clear hmm we never may never know the exact number of victims there, the police and authorities think that there's probably between 90 and 100 between the years of 1982 and 2001 november 3rd 2003 gary ridgway pled guilty to 48 counts of aggravated murder one month later he was sentenced to 48 life sentences with no chance of parole thank god Um, yeah, but it seems as though the majority of his murders occurred between 1982 and 84. He kind of went a little bit crazy during that time period, like legit, like that's when he was like killing without holding himself back in any way, shape or form. Right. And was not worried about getting caught. Um,
1: he had his berserker mode at the beginning.
0: Absolutely. And most of these victims came from the Pacific highway South along that road most of the bodies were found around the Green River, the SeaTac Airport, and South King County. And let's see here. I wanted to kind of give an, a little mm-hmm. rundown of the victims because I think that that's really important because these are not yeah. nobodies. They're people. They're somebody's mother, sister, daughter, wife, cousin. They're important. I'm just going to do this really quickly. I wish I could take more time. But I feel like it's important to speak their names because they're important. So before Ridgeway's confession, authorities had attributed 49 murders to the Green River Killer. But after his confessions, there were at least 71 victims that were formally attributed to him. But at the time of Ridgeway's December 18, 2003 sentencing, authorities have been able to find 48 sets of remains, including victims not originally attributed to the Green River Killer. Ridgway was sentenced for the deaths of each one of these victims with a plea agreement that he would plead guilty to any and all future cases in King County where his confession could be corroborated by reliable evidence. So when they find more bodies, if it can be attributed to him, he agrees to plead guilty to these cases as well. Yeah, Isn't that interesting? As part of his plea agreement, which is not something I think that is very common, but the city definitely knew that this was a very prolific killer, and if they could save the money by having him automatically plead guilty to it then I think that that's a smart decision but here are the victims Wendy Lee Caulfield was age 16 Giselle Ann LaVarne age 17 Deborah Lynn Bonner age 23 Marcia Faye Chapman Cynthia Jean Hines age 17 Opal Charmaine Mills age 16 Terry Renee Milligan age 16 Mary Bridget Meehan, age 18; Deborah Lorraine Estes, found May 30th, 1988; she was age 15; Linda Jane Rule, age 16, found January 31st, 1983; Denise Darcel Bush, age 23, found uh, June 12th, 1985; Shonda Leah Summers, age 16, found August 11th, 1983; Shirley Marie Sherrill, age 18, found. June 14th, 1985, Rebecca Becky Moreno, age 20, found December 21st, 2010, Colleen Renee Brockman, age 15, I mean it just breaks my heart, 15, found Mm -hmm. May 26th, 1984, Sandra Denise Major, age 20, found December 30th, 1985, that's a hell of a Christmas present, Alma Ann Smith, age 18, found April 2nd, 1984, Dolores Laverne Williams, age 17, Found March 31st, 1984. Gail Lynn Matthews, age 23, found September 18th, 1983. Andrea Marion Childers, age 19, found October 11th, 1989. Sandra K. Gabbert, age 17, found April 1st, 1984. Kimmy Kai Pitzer, age 16, found December 15th, 1983. Marie M. Malver, age 18, found September 26, 2003. So she was found a little bit later. Carol Ann Christensen, age 21, found May 8, 1983. And these are in chronological order of, obviously, when he killed them. But Martina Mm -hmm. Therese Authorly, age 18, found November 14, 1984. Cheryl Lee Wims, age 18, found March 22, 1984. Yvonne Shelley Antosh, age 19, found October 15, 1983. Carrie Ann Royce, age 15, May 10th, 1985 was when she was found. Constance Elizabeth Neon, age 19, found October 27th, 1983. Kelly Marie Ware, age 22, found October 29th, 1983. Tina Marie Thompson, age 21, found April 20th, 1984. April Dawn Butram, age t- 16, found August 30th, 2003. Marie May Abernathy, age 26, so she's a little bit older, uh, found March 31st, March 31, 1984. Tracy Lynn, Tracy Ann Winston, age 19, found March 27, 1986. Marine Sue Feeney, age 19, found May 2, 19 Maybe we should just skip the. These are long. Mary Sue Bello, age 25. Pammy Annette Event, age 15. Delise Louise Pladger, age 22. Kimberly L Nelson, age 21. Lisa Yates, age 19. Mary Exetta West, age sixteen, Cindy Ann Smith, age seventeen, Patricia Michelle Barzak, age nineteen, Roberta Joseph Hayes, age twenty-one, Marta Reeves, age thirty-six, Patricia Yellowrobe, age thirty-eight, an unidentified white female Jane Doe, age twelve to eighteen, unidentified white female Jane Doe, age fourteen to eighteen, unidentified female Jane Doe, age 13 to 24. And these are the known and mm. confirmed victims of Gary Ridgeway. So there are three women that have not been identified as of yet, and possibly many more out there that have not been found, which is horrifying. Unbelievable. It's,
1: it's sobering to hear you read out the names. It just, the end that these women were treated, these women and young girls were treated is just... Yeah. throwaways.
0: I mean, it's just- there are six additional victims that are suspected of being victims of his but have not been proven to be his and he won't admit to them, but they suspect that he killed them. Um that's Armina, excuse me, Amina Agasaf, age 35, Casey and Lee Woods, age 16, Tammy Tammy Lyles, age 16. Kelly K. McGinnis, age 18, Angela Marie Gerdner, age 16, and Patricia Osborne, age 19. And then there's a whole list of Hmm. other ones that he is suspected of potentially being involved with, which is absolutely horrifying. Um, If you know somebody that you suspect was a potential victim or recognize someone, we're going to put some information into the show notes. Again, this is like a lot of the other ones. There were a lot of young women in the sex work industry that disappeared during that period of time. And many that have been missing and never confirmed dead. We're going to provide more information in the show notes about how you could potentially look into that. I mean, it's just it's a really sad, sad, sad case. Mm -hmm. Sad way to end your life. Yeah absolutely and I do just
1: want to throw in a book recommendation Riverman by uh, Robert Keppel it is about interviewing Ted Bundy in relation to the Green River Killer um, murders and it's not as much a book about the Green River Killer as it is a book about Ted Bundy because it's really interesting He they discovered pretty early on in interviewing him that this was a way for him to talk about what he did and his behaviors as a serial killer. And this is how they kind of started opening him up to getting him to talk about the victims. Because prior to this, you know, he wasn't, like, t- admitting to any of the um, victims in, in uh, Washington, Utah, Colorado, or any of that, Um so they would talk about things like he would drive a lot Well, Ted Bundy drove a lot. He had a drinking problem. Ted Bundy had a drinking problem. He would go back and visit them Well, Ted Bundy went back and visited them. And he talked about how he would go back and visit them for a time, um, but then after a while he wouldn't be able to visit them anymore. And that actually was because Ted Bundy was a necrophiliac. Yeah. So he wasn't saying directly that Gary Ridgway was, but he was saying he probably is doing these things because this is what I did, but without saying yeah. this is what I did. It's a really, yeah, really good book. Out, yeah,
0: I think you can find it on Amazon.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's a phenomenal great book. Great
0: read, great advice. Yeah. Um, okay, so for me, this case is interesting for a lot of reasons, and I'm glad that we finally were able to talk about it, um, just because he just has a sort of a different, I think, background than a lot of the serial killers that we've talked about on the show. I know we've talked a lot about serial killers that were charismatic or intelligent or ones that had super good memories or things like that. And it just doesn't seem like this guy had any of those. He wasn't charming. He wasn't like, there was nothing particularly special about him. It just had this weird kind of background. And yeah, he's,
1: he's very much like more so what you read about. Um, Like a typical serial killer, like in terms of like the McDonald triad and things like that. Um, But his victim pool was sex workers because it didn't require him to have any kind of skill in talking to women or approaching women or anything like that.
0: And it's particularly interesting that he got away with it for so long with such a low intelligence level. And that to me speaks of the absolute... Discrimination against sex workers They were not 100%. Looked at seriously The police didn't give a crap about them And they were disposable victims That no one cared about
1: mm-hmm.
0: I mean if he had gone and been a serial killer With normal Women from High school Or you know, ones from a job Then I bet you anything That they would have found him And taken this case much more seriously Than they did back then yeah, they
1: would have cared earlier if it had been, like, I don't know, like a white collar, you know, or, like, school kids or something like that. Like, they would have cared a lot earlier than than they did with this case, for sure.
0: So, I'm just glad that we're starting to see things in a different light, and no one in our society is disposable. I think that it's exactly. important to note that. So. In yeah. any case, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap the podcast up there. This is the point where we say so long for a while. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We're at the podcast at gmail.com. Darcy, social media? We are at the bfd podcast
1: on Twitter and Instagram. So you can also find us there, and we'll put, like, info and resource info and things like that um, as well.
0: Now, unfortunately, there are just so many victims of this case. I think it, it makes it a whole lot more challenging to post pictures of the victims, which we like to mm-hmm. do, um, because those people deserve you know some sort of recognition and memory in, in their honor as well. But it's so hard to do when there's 50, 75, 100 different victims. Right. So we'll do our best to try to provide some of the faces that this man eliminated from the world. But please join us again right. next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.